Welcome to Courage in Healthcare, a podcast brought to you by Maxworth Consulting Group. I'm your host, Kyle Worthy. Our last episode launched our series on rural healthcare in America. In this series, we're diving into the issues that are threatening access to care in some of our most medically underserved communities, and we're putting a spotlight on the professionals who are trying to remedy the problem. Last time, we talked to Dr. William Curry about one of the biggest barriers to healthcare in rural areas the long distances patients have to travel to get to their care providers. Telehealth may offer a solution for many people in remote areas, and broadband professionals like Craig Settles are trying to figure out how we can make sure everyone in America has access to the technologies and infrastructure that make telemedicine possible. But telemedicine comes with its own set of barriers and limitations. No matter what kind of advancements are made in telehealth in the coming years, rural communities will still need more physicians. Unfortunately, rural hospitals and health systems struggle to recruit physicians to remote areas, and competition for physicians is stiff, even among organizations that don't have to deal with the added challenge of location. The good news is, there are leaders out there who are coming up with creative ways to draw providers to the places they are needed most. Today, we will hear from Dr. Curry of UAB again, as well as Alan Morgan of the National Rural Health Association, Bill Feinerfrock of the National Association of Rural Health Clinics, and Brad Huretta, CEO of Lost Rivers, a thriving rural hospital in Arco, Idaho, population 890. Part two, physician shortages. Physician shortage in America has been well documented. The latest data published by the AAMC projects that the primary care provider shortage will fall between 21,400 and 55,200 by the year 2033. To learn more about how the shortage impacts rural communities, we turn to Alan Morgan, who currently serves as the CEO of the National Rural Health Association. The study of rural health care really is, is the study of workforce shortages. Um, mm. For over 100 years, when you talk about rural health and rural health access, uh, you're, you're talking about um, shortages, shortages of physicians and, and other health care staff. And the importance of this is at the National Rural Health Association, we really focus in on health care access and the health of a community. But because of that, we, we spend a lot of time talking about um, hospital finances and, and physician recruitment and retention within these facilities. Because access to healthcare directly translates to life expectancy and quality of life for these uh, rural communities. Morgan also points out that the impact physicians have on their communities reaches beyond population health. When you talk about rural hospitals and their viability, you can't discuss that without talking about physician availability within that community. Physicians really make the healthcare system work. According to the Rural Health Works, each primary care physician um, equates to $1.4 million in revenue for that community. And each primary care physician in a a small town uh, equates to 26.3 jobs at the community. So it's not just the healthcare access, but it's also the viability of that small town and everything that it brings to it. So how can rural healthcare organizations attract physicians? Morgan says selling the strong suits of the community is key, and the community should understand how important it is to support the hospital's recruiting efforts. 
I cannot stress enough the importance of community involvement when it comes to uh, recruiting physicians into these small towns. Um, the most important thing really for these communities to understand is that local access is a community asset. And research that we've seen done from the University of North Dakota, uh, in particular from Dr. David Schmitz and his APCAR uh, project, is that when it comes to recruiting physicians into a community, you really have to sell the community itself. Um, it's really tough, to, and as you know well, it's tough to compete um, from salaries, uh, rural versus urban, but what you can compete with and really compete uh, is on the quality of life and what that community can bring to that clinician coming into that small town. Uh, so it, it, when it comes to rural uh, re recruitment, it certainly is a community effort. Morgan has seen several hospitals excel at recruitment by embracing their strengths of their communities. Uh, I had the opportunity uh, a few years ago to spend some time in uh, Childress, Texas, and it's a small community uh, uh, outside of Amarillo, and they have done physician recruiting right there at that hospital. And I mean, they, they, they understand the value of their community and what they offer. And I got to tell you, if you're into dove hunting, that is the place to be. And spent the weekend dove hunting with their, their clinicians on staff and with their hospital CEO. This is a good example of taking what you have in that community that works, pitching that to the clinician, and really being a, a great place to live and raise your families in. Now, let's take another example. Uh, former CEO uh, Benjamin Anderson, uh, who now works for the Colorado Hospital Association. Wow, he's been on NPR, CBS News uh, for his efforts of recruiting and retaining physicians in Western Kansas. And he's done so through an innovative approach of promising clinicians an overseas uh, sabbatical, for lack of better words. Understanding that if you're willing to work in a rural context, you have different, um, uh, 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 different things that you are looking for in life. And being able to offer these physicians and uh, the chance to practice medicine in a foreign country is, uh, for a small period of time has actually been successful. And he's, he, he did a good job there doing that. I guess it's a long way of saying uh, there are a lot of different strategies, but the important thing is in a rural context, um, know the strengths within your community, be able to pitch those strengths, and be able to attract candidates that value those strengths. While it's important to sell a community's assets, it's also important to sell them to the right person, someone who's naturally drawn to the rural lifestyle. Morgan says most of the time, this person is someone who grew up in a rural setting. 20 years of research that we've done um, at the, at the uh, uh, Rural Health Association, 20 years of research has shown that if, if you want to have a successful recruitment and successful retention, you need to look at someone with a rural background. Now, that being said, there are more urban kids that are in medical school, so you, you can't discard urban kids, but um, the successful uh, strategy is always finding someone who has a rural background that understands the rural lifestyle and wants that type of lifestyle going ahead. 
Morgan is first to admit that these strategies, while they are crucial for rural organizations, are not solving the underlying problems that create physician shortages in rural areas. Uh, so much of what we're doing, I got to be honest with this, we're, we're treating the symptom and not the underlying problem. And the underlying problem is, if, as a nation, um, we recruit the best and the brightest to these medical schools who oftentimes have to be uh, urban-based kids um, from upper income urban families. And then we train them in medical schools in an urban setting. And then we try to place them in rural communities and we're dumbfounded that they don't want to practice in Flush, Kansas. Uh, again, that's just how it's done. And so we have to, as a result of that, adapt our strategies. But to address the underlying problem, we really need to do a better job of doing rural residency programs, attracting rural kids, and, and giving them that opportunity to stay in the rural community. Dr. William Curry of UAB is doing just that with the Rural Medical Scholars Program for undergraduate students at Alabama and Auburn who are preparing to enter medical school. As a medical school, what, what we have done is uh, what you alluded to, the Rural Scholars Programs, we have two tracks of that. And that's primarily because we have both Alabama and Auburn, and I'll explain. So we take students uh, in their, 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 when they are ready to apply to medical school, um, they may uh, be not quite as competitive initially, or they may have applied and not gotten accepted the first time, but they are from a rural county. And in that year prior to enrollment in medical school, if they're accepted into the Rural Medical Scholars Program in Tuscaloosa or the Rural Medical Program that's at Auburn, uh, then, then they get uh, additional um, uh, educational experiences and, experience, and uh, uh, experiential learning uh, in rural settings, uh, both about the community and about rural practice, uh, so that they're, ready, they're more ready for medical school. And they've also seen that rural practice is rewarding and, and uh, uh, at least something that they need to consider seriously. So they, they're accepted into that program and they just state an intention to want to do rural practice. It's not binding, but we ask them to do that. There are some scholarship programs that they can compete for that are binding that have that have uh, some uh, penalties if you don't uh, do a certain number of years of rural practice. So, but those two give people a, a pre-enrollment year uh, to get ready for medical school, and then we keep them together as a cohort through the first two years of medical school here in Birmingham. Then the Rural Medical Scholars Program go back to Tuscaloosa to the regional campus there. And the Rural Medical Program uh, third-year students go to our Huntsville Regional Medical Campus uh, and do their last two years of medical school there. And then after that, of course, they all do whatever residency they, they choose uh, to do. Um, the results of those programs have been very positive uh, over the years, over the 20 years or so of the programs about 80% of students in those programs practice in the state. 60% uh, of them roughly uh, are primary care physicians, sometimes more, it varies from year to year. Uh, and uh, over half of them are practicing in rural Alabama. So, so compared to 10% of the, of the typical medical school class uh, really doing primary care at all, that's, that's a remarkable uh, sort of outcome. And that's uh, been published nationally and gotten a lot of a lot of attention. They're very successful programs. The success of programs like the Rural Scholars Program in Alabama are encouraging, but once you've attracted a physician to a rural community, who's to say they're going to stick around? 
When it comes to retention, the most important thing to remember is, I'll be honest, leadership matters. Um, it, that physician-CEO uh, relationship that we see is of paramount importance. And being able to connect with your clinical staff, um, have a good relationship with the clinical staff, and lead on behalf of the community makes all the difference in the world on retention. Um, I have to share with you, I, there is a, um, we all know the challenges in recruitment in a rural context. That's well been documented. There's kind of a misconception that retention is a problem in a rural setting, but um, research done by Christine Hancock shows that, th- that retention levels, uh, urban and rural, are similar. And I think that gets back to what we've been talking about. If you have the right uh, candidate that you're able to recruit into the community, doing the work on the front end for recruiting, we'll make sure that the retention follows as well. The fact that leaders like Alan Morgan and Dr. Curry are making strides in their search for solutions to physician shortage inspires hope for the future. But in the meantime, people in rural communities need health care today. What's being done now to support rural health providers and improve the quality of care available to our underserved populations? When Bill Feinerfrock and his friend Ron Nelson realized that rural health clinics had nowhere to turn to for support, they joined forces to create an organization called the National Association of Rural Health Clinics. Um, So in March, uh, the National Association of Rural Health Clinics will be celebrating our 30th uh, birthday. Uh, We were incorporated in the state of Michigan in uh, 1991. Uh, The the concept and the the conversation and our efforts to create the organization predate that by a couple of years. And it it literally is an organization that was conceived and created uh, over the kitchen table of a a good friend of mine, a gentleman by the name of Ron Nelson, who is the co-founder with me of the association. He passed away uh, a few years ago. But at the time, I was working for the American Academy of Physician Assistants, and Ron was a PA working in rural Michigan. And uh, I was getting a lot of calls about rural health clinic issues from PAs who were working uh, in rural health clinics. Ron was uh, uh, working with some folks in Michigan who were uh, working in rural health clinics. And as we were searching around to, to try and get answer for, answers from, uh, for people, uh, we found that it was extremely difficult. There was nobody that um, was a, a reasonable uh, landing spot for questions and issues related to rural health clinics. And it became very frustrating. And so uh, we essentially sat there and said, well, if it doesn't exist, maybe we can create it. And uh, we came up with an outline for what the association would do and uh, reached out to some people we knew who were in rural health clinics, the people who had been uh, calling me and reaching out um, all from the PA world and said, you know, what do you think? And and they were like, yeah, let's go for it. And so, uh, you know, some folks gave us uh, some some dollars. We had a few dollars uh, floating around and uh, we got it up and, and off the ground and it, it took a while. Um, but we got it going. We finally got it incorporated, as I said, in 1991 and uh, have been growing uh, ever since. But it was out of that need that, that there was really no one there to answer questions or uh, be a voice uh, for the rural health clinics community. So what is a rural health clinic? One, very often they get confused with um, community health centers. 
uh, or what are called federally qualified health centers. And it's a very different program. It actually uh, predates the federally qualified health center program and is a few years younger than community health centers. But a rural health clinic is a primary care clinic that is located in a rural underserved area. And for purposes of this program, a rural area is uh, any community uh, designated as a non-urbanized area by the Census Bureau, which is essentially communities of up to 50,000 people or contiguous communities whose combined population don't exceed 50,000. Uh, and then for purposes of underserved, it's a medically underserved area or a health professional shortage area, which are federal designations or has been designated by the uh, state as uh, an underserved area using a methodology developed by the state. Uh, they can be for-profit or non-profit. They can be owned by the government. Any entity that can own a medical practice in the state in which the clinic is located can own a rural health clinic. Uh, it is uh, a primary care oriented uh, clinic in the sense that uh, they must be primarily engaged in delivering services typically uh, available in a physician's office. They must have as a condition of certification a physician assistant, nurse practitioner or nurse midwife uh, on staff and available to provide care at least 50% of the time the clinic is open and they must have a physician who serves as a medical director. Uh, that PANP uh, CNM requirement uh, comes out of the fact that at the time the legislation was passed in the uh, late 70s, in 1977, uh, the PANP uh, and to a lesser degree the nurse midwifery provision uh, professions were really in their uh, infancy. PAs and NPs had, had only been even created uh, about 10, 12 years prior to the passage and we were seeing them uh, going out to rural areas to practice. And the, the laws, particularly Medicare and Medicaid laws, did not really uh, support uh, their practice out there. So uh, a part of the creation of the program also was its, its application to the utilization of PAs and MPs as part of the, the care workforce. These clinics help ease the impact of the physician shortage in rural areas in a couple of ways. We're putting these clinics into areas where there's a documented need, either because of the lack of availability. That there are the two methodologies that you use look at um, factors that are exist in that community. So, for health professional shortage area, the dominant factor there is primary care physician to population ratio. So, the government has come in; they've looked at a community and they said, you know, there's an inadequate supply of primary care physicians in this community. And so we're going to put them on the health professional shortage area list. The second option is medically underserved, which while it does use physician to population ratio as a component, places greater emphasis on socioeconomic and demographic factors as a proxy for having uh, underserved. And those tend to be a little bit more relevant in urban areas, but they look at poverty, infant mortality, unemployment, socioeconomic uh, factors, as well as clinical. So, First and foremost, we know that where all these new clinics are going to go are areas that have documented shortages. So it addresses it on that part. And number two, as I mentioned earlier, you must have a PA or an MP on staff. And so it really lends itself, as we have seen the numbers of PAs and NPs increase over the last several years with the creation of programs, it facilitates uh, and encourages 
the utilization of those providers in these communities because it is difficult to recruit uh, physicians to these underserved areas for a variety of reasons. And so uh, in some cases, it's easier to recruit a nurse practitioner or a PA to those communities. So all those things come together to say, yes, it will uh, absolutely improve access to care because of where they have to be located. And number two, will um, will encourage the utilization of PAs and NPs because of the requirements of the program. Fighter Frog is encouraged by the fact that new legislation and payment models might lead to the creation of more rural health clinics that could further ease the impact of physician shortages. I think what one of the things that we've started to see particularly in the last couple of years, is nurse practitioners uh, wanting to start rural health clinics. Um, as, as you may be aware, your audience may be aware, um, many states have begun liberalizing uh, their laws with regard to nurse practitioners and allowing them to practice independently. We're seeing similar kind of activity on the PA side where uh, supervision requirements are being relaxed and the ability to own practices is, is improving there as well. Um, and so we think that in addition to physicians, we're going to see a, a resurgence in uh, the desirability of nurse practitioners and PAs to open rural health clinics, in particular in some of these smaller, harder to reach communities where they can now get paid. Uh, they have a large Medicare population. They can get paid at rates that are, are uh, better able to cover their costs and not take on the, uh, the administrative infrastructure cost of the hospital. So we now believe that, that between the improvement in state laws combined with the improvement in the ability to get compensated uh, at a rate uh, much more com- at much more competitive rates uh, really will lend itself to encouraging the creation of, of new RHCs in some of these underserved areas. Another source of hope for the future lies in innovative staffing models. No one knows the power of these models more than Brad Huretta, CEO of Lost Rivers in Arco, Idaho. Huretta recently made a change at Lost Rivers after discovering a cost-neutral staffing model that keeps his ED staffed. About a year and a half ago, uh, we made the strategic decision to forego um, getting a traditional employed physician model or having an employed physician model, uh, whereby we have one or two or three employed physicians uh, to to work uh, the hours, you know, the 24-hour coverage, um, and instead move to an outsource model. Of course, the problem was we, we always you know, getting two or three physicians willing to work full-time and move here. Um, usually a lot of them have families, and there's a lot of struggles with families, uh, you know, in a smaller community. There's just not a lot to do if you have teenagers. I, I had a few myself since I've been working here. Um, and the opportunities just, you know, they're just different. Uh, if you're not into the outdoors or, you know, maybe your spouse isn't into the outdoors, it's hard to get them here. It's hard to keep them here. Um, and you're asking them to do a lot. You know, you're covering emergency room medicine. You're covering clinic. You're covering on call. Um, and so the burnout rate tends to be pretty high. Uh, you add up physician salary and compensation packages and then times that by three or four people. It really does become a significant uh, uh, drain on the hospital. And so we're trying hard to figure out what we could do. And we stumbled across a model. Uh, I was actually referred to it from a friend of mine, uh, whereby we have um, physicians that are they're probably late careerists, I would say, generally, uh, you know, in their 60s who've been practicing for 20 or 30 years. Uh, all of them, uh, you know, ATLS certified, PAL certified, uh, 
ACLS certified type physicians who are late careers who maybe are tired of working in metro area ERs, you know, seeing 30, 40 patients a day under high stress conditions. They want to scale back their practice, but they also want to still be able to keep that license and, and work in a meaningful way. And what uh, we found was uh, an organization that was willing, they, they hire these physicians and then they send them to our facility about a week at a time. And so we always have the same uh, physician the first week of the month. And the next physician's always the second week of the month. And then we get another one for the third week of the month. So the continuity of care is, is pretty close, um, but uh, the reliability is so much better. The physician burnout uh, is almost non-existent. These guys work one or two weeks out of the month. They get to go home and have a good life work balance. Uh, they show up and they're fresh and ready to go. Um, really, for us, it was actually more affordable than having employed physicians uh, and ended up, we were getting a high caliber physician with years of experience uh, who, who always has their A game when they show up. You know, honestly, um, like I said, the physician burnout issues is, is real. Um, and so we don't want to burn out our doctors. And certainly there's not a lot of them out there anyway. So having a fresh doctor show up, you know, once a month or you know twice a month, has really been a good thing for us. And I think the patient care has actually gotten better because these guys have years and years of experience. Um, and we just are they're just so grateful we're able to do that. It, it, it is significantly different um, than a locum model. Of course, we couldn't afford locums 24 hours a day. I don't think anybody can the, the, way, they, the way they charge. But it is a model whereby I think our physicians tend to deliver better care uh, more consistently uh, and, in, and are truly, I think, invested in our community more. Uh, the, the group we have, they, they buy a house. They own a house here in town, so they live a block away from the hospital. Uh, they live here during the week. They know our staff. They, you know, they have their birthdays, and they bring their wives out. And, you know, it's, it's, not, it, it's, it's more of a partnership rather than an employee, um, you know, employee-employer uh, relationship. So we're very, we're very grateful for that model. And like I said, it's relatively cost-neutral for us. Uh, it's, it's been a good thing for us. I think the key component to that as well is their ability to want to sign and keep long-term contracts. Um, I don't sweat coverage anymore, whereas you know, used to always worry about holidays or weekends or Fourth of July or Christmas. You know, I, I can tell you who's going to staff my ER six months from now, and the, the schedule is set, um, and you know who's going to be there and what what their capabilities are. There's consistency. Most of those physicians have been working at our at our facility now for for over a year and a half if not more um so we're pretty we're pretty happy with that we're, we're very happy with that Huretta is no stranger to trying different models he's tried several including a partnership with a nearby hospital but given the success he's had with this newest model he believes it could be the future of staffing at rural facilities i'm not exaggerating when i i truly believe this is going to be a staffing model of the future for, for critical access hospitals. Uh, I don't see the physician shortage uh, getting better as, as time goes by, or at least not for the foreseeable future, as uh, we, we still have a, a severe lack of physicians uh, and, and ER physicians. And, and the ones that we do have, that it's, it's hard to get them to come to a rural community, and they have families, and it's understandable. Uh, so I think rural communities... I think if you talk to any, any administrator who runs a critical access hospital, right at the top of their, 
maybe their top three concerns is how do we continue to staff at a level uh, that's appropriate and, 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 you know, get that level of care here that we need. Uh, it, it's just getting increasingly more difficult. I, I do believe uh, this model will, will only continue to grow uh, as we find more and more rural areas under pressure to get skilled uh, ER physicians and skilled uh, acute care physicians. Uh, and, and to be honest with you, like I say, it's a win-win for everybody. I think you get, you know, very seasoned MDs that are in your facility that, that uh, are looking to, to bring their A game, I guess, uh, but also willing to yeah, bring years of experience from, a, you know, like I said, a, maybe a level one trauma center. You're getting level one trauma surgeons and level one trauma ER physicians to your hospital. The only drawback uh, again, kind of goes maybe to the consistency of care, the continuity of care. In the clinic side of the house, you know, you want to establish a patient relationship uh, where I can see my doctor every week or every month or whatever. But we do have that consistency that the same doctors are scheduled the same time slots every month. Um, but if you just walk in off the street, uh, you're, you're, you're going to get most likely one of our nurse practitioners. So a lot of our long-term uh, medical relationships for, you know, I think we have prescription refills or those kinds of things or allergies or wellness, wellness visits are done by the mid-levels. Uh, but the ER medicine typically is done by, by this physician. And I think that's, I think it's a good model. I think it's an affordable model. It, it's fair to our doctors uh, who we love and we need. Um, and, you know, you're getting really good, good physicians who know what they're doing. And I, I like to joke, uh, you know, we're a level. Well, one of the reasons we have to have MDs too is we're actually a trauma center uh, for a critical oh, access well, hospital. Yeah. We always, well, one of the regulations is you have to have uh, physicians uh, staff the ER, and so that's another critical reason to to become a tra- a, a trauma center. You have to have that, at least in Idaho. Mm-hmm. And um, you know, it's it's fair to them. It's fair to us. It's good for patient care. And all things being equal, it's it's just about cost neutral. So it's it's been a good thing for us. And I, I think it only, I, I think that's the staffing model of the future, unless there's suddenly a huge dearth of uh, physicians entering the marketplace. Shiretta reminds us that employment models have to accomplish more than one thing. They have to staff a hospital, but they also have to be sustainable so they don't threaten the long-term viability of the organization. In our next episode, we're going to talk about the financial viability of rural healthcare organizations and what can be done to safeguard their futures. We'll hear from Brad Huretta and Alan Morgan again. We'll also speak with Dr. Mark Holmes, who currently serves as the director of the Cecil G. Shep Center for Health Services Research at UNC. Dr. Holmes and his team have conducted extensive research on rural hospitals to try to understand why they're closing at an accelerated rate and what kind of economic impact these closures are having on their communities. Thank you for listening, and don't forget to tune in next time as we talk about the financial viability of some of our most needed hospitals and health systems.